turn with me, please, in your copies of God's Word to Psalm 103. I'm going to read once again the first five verses. Psalm 103, a Psalm of David. Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy desire with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle. We've been going through this psalm, this psalm of gratitude from the sweet psalmist of Israel. Indeed, one man wrote a commentary on this psalm, uh, and this psalm only, and the title of his relatively small book was Gratitude. And that's what we have here in this psalm, of course, and we've been looking over the past several weeks at the wonder of these things that David is blessing Jehovah for from the depths of his being, the depths of his soul, all that is within him, blessing God's holy name and seeking to forget not all his benefits. He enumerates those benefits, and we've been looking at them as he has been enumerating them. He has forgiven all David's iniquities and all ours, healing all our diseases, sanctifying us, Redeeming our lives from destruction on many occasions. And now we come to what some writers have suggested is something of a a capstone. When he says, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. All these benefits that he's enumerated, they're now being crowned with loving kindness and tender mercies. And David is praising Jehovah for having done that. Crowning all these things, crowning them with loving kindness and tender mercies. I wouldn't try to imitate Charles Haddon Spurgeon, his verbiage is usually impeccable and excellent and poignant. And so if I may, I'm just going to read a paragraph of Spurgeon's regarding this crowning, who crowneth thee, with loving kindness and tender mercies. Spurgeon said, Our Lord does nothing by halves. He will not stay his hand till he has gone to the uttermost with his people. Cleansing, healing, redemption are not enough. He must needs make them kings and crown them. And the crown must be far more precious than if it were made of corruptible things such as silver and gold. It is studded with gems of grace and lined with the velvet of loving kindness. It is decked with the jewels of mercy but made soft for the head to wear by a lining of tenderness. I think he expresses David's 
thanksgiving and gratitude very well in those words from the one who rightfully was called the Prince of Preachers of the 19th century in London. The psalmist here seeks Jehovah as one whose steadfast love has been from of old. He speaks of that in Psalm 25, this steadfast love. And I'm referring to it as steadfast love because that's one of the terms that writers use with regard to their trying to explain what loving kindness is. I believe it was Miles Coverdale who is credited with framing this word loving kindness. It's not actually a translation of the Hebrew. The Hebrew word is hesed, which may be translated mercy. But there are so many occasions and virtually all the writers I consulted agree that it's very difficult to express in the context what this mercy is because it's so much far greater than mercy. It's loving kindness, Coverdale suggested, and that's been laid hold on by many of the translators. But David speaks of this in Psalm 25, 6, when he says, Remember, O Jehovah, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. <coughs> Excuse me. I would just mention that we have here just one of many uh, passages in the Psalms where loving kindness and tender mercies, or sometimes simply mercies, are joined together in one verse. This is just one of those. And David sees Jehovah as one whose steadfast love, whose loving kindness has been from of old. He prays in Psalm 36, 7, thanking God, saying, How precious is thy Loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge under the shadow of thy wings, suggesting that the shadow of God's wings has been provided because, and through his loving kindness, his steadfast love. And I think we all are well aware of Psalm 136 and how that this divine hesed, as one wrote, is extolled again and again in Psalm 136, 26 times, I believe, 26 verses, where the psalmist speaks of many of the blessings and many of the beauties of God, of Jehovah, and his doings and the wonders of his doings. And then he repeats again and again, his loving kindness endureth forever. The loving kindness of Jehovah endures forever. He repeats, as I said, I believe 26 times. The King James translates it mercy in that instance. And it leaves them at a little bit of a loss when they come to some of these other psalms where 
loving kindness and mercy are brought together because if they translate it there, mercy, then they would have mercy and mercy. And so they have capitulated, I, I suppose it's fair to say, and they've translated, even in our Psalm 103, they've translated it loving kindness. But I believe that my translation has 176 occasions of loving kindness, whereas the King James has 29. So they evidently preferred mercy. Mercy is just one aspect, I would press. It's only one aspect of that wonderful loving kindness, that steadfast love. Mercy is one thing that evolves out of that loving kindness that God has for his people. And I don't believe that it's enough. As wonderful as the mercy of God is, it's not enough in this case to express that loving kindness, that steadfast love. But David repeated this again and again in that Psalm 136. And then perhaps one of the most convincing proofs of divine mercy and kindness and loving kindness which could be given, we see in Psalm 40, that psalm that many of us believe is a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ saying, Lo, I come. In the role of the book, it is written of me. But he says in verses 10 and 11, I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great assembly. Withhold not thou thy tender mercies from me, O Jehovah. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. I believe that it's not unfair to suggest our Lord Jesus Christ putting his, his own stamp of approval, if you will, upon the union of loving kindness and tender mercies that David speaks of so often. The psalmist speaks in Psalm 51, that well-known penitential psalm. He prays with a deeply penitent heart for the remission of sins and expects God to grant it according to his loving kindness, according to his steadfast love. He is continually praising Jehovah for his loving kindness, which is good. And in another place, he says, which is better than life, in Psalm 63, 3. David uses this word very, very often and extols God's loving kindness and mercy. God's tender mercies and his loving kindness joined together, as I mentioned, numerous, numerous occasions. I believe that what we're looking at, as some have suggested, and I'm inclined to concur largely with them, they refer to this as covenant love. Covenant love. Steadfast love, covenant love, a love that will not let his people go. It would not let David go. We know the history of David. We know what brought about Psalm 51. We have even the superscription of that psalm that reminds us, in case we should happen to forget, 
It tells us, for the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba, committed adultery, and then saw to the death, the murder of Uriah, her husband. What a wicked sinner David was. Could he ever expect forgiveness? Could he ever expect to be brought back to God? Well, God wouldn't let him go. He sent his prophet Nathan. God sent Nathan to bring David to repentance. And Nathan presented that parable about the neighbor with the ewe lamb that was taken and so on. And that really did the trick. And it was something of a trick on Nathan's part that brought David to get angry even at that man that somebody would do something like that. And he said, that man shall pay fourfold. And Nathan pointed his finger and David's between his eyes maybe and said, thou art the man. And that's all it took. God wouldn't let David go on in his unrepentant state. He sent his prophet to hail him back. Sent him back. Don't believe that it's possible to divorce Psalm 103, this song of gratitude, as we've said, from that song of repentance in Psalm 51. Bless Jehovah, O my soul, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Surely David went to utter that penitence and frame that psalm of penitence knowing and reminding himself and begging as the words indicate, O Lord God, on the basis of your loving kindness, not on the basis of anything in me, (coughs) not on the basis of any merits that I might have or think I have, but because of your loving kindness, have mercy on me. And he cries unto God, The God that he writes of later, if the chronological order is, is uh, correct in the, in the station of these psalms, which it isn't. But nonetheless, we'll put it that way, that he goes on. Many think that he was an old man when he wrote 103. But he, he reminds himself of God's loving kindness and tender mercies, not just only on that occasion, but especially on that occasion. We should certainly see his gratitude reflecting on God's wonderful forgiveness through his loving kindness, through his steadfast love, his steadfast mercy, his not being willing to let one of his sheep wander and stay away. Mark mentioned pathos this morning. And it struck me as interesting. I never had any problem imagining Paul speaking in words of pathos myself. And I don't have any problem 
reflecting on God speaking in words of pathos either because I already had prepared to bring forward these words in Isaiah 49, 15. These words of pathos. God speaking through his prophet Isaiah or causing Isaiah to speak his word one way or the other. It amounts to the same thing. But speaking toward this sort of an issue, can a woman, he says, forget her sucking child? That she should not have compassion on the son of her womb. Yea, these may forget, yet will not I forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee on the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. God will not forget his people upon whom he has set his love from before the foundation of the world. He will not forget them. And what is it that continues that connection? God's great faithful love, his covenant love, his steadfast love, his determined love. That's what I believe loving kindness is speaking of. That love that will not let his people go. And when, David, when Jehovah was determining, if we can try to think of God in linear terms, when God was determining how to deal with David's failure to repent of his wicked sins, we can almost hear him crying out as he cried out through Hosea. How shall I give thee up, David? There's David showing no remorse for his terrible wickedness. God crying out, perhaps, how shall I give thee up, David? How shall I cast thee off, my son? How shall I make thee as Balaam? How shall I set thee as Saul? My heart is turned within me. My compassions are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not return to destroy David, for I am God. And not man. I will send my prophet to bring David to repentance. I will not let him go. David is his covenant child. And he is therefore the beneficiary of Jehovah's covenant love. His loving kindness. One scholar said that without the prior existence of a covenant, there could never be any hesed at all. The word represents that attitude to a covenant without which that covenant could not continue to exist. It has no meaning apart from a covenant previously instituted. <coughs> it is always conditioned by the terms of that covenant. I will not let him go. Wonderful as his love for his covenant people. Wonderful as his love for his covenant people. His steady persistence in it is more wonderful still. 
Wonderful as his love is for his covenant people, his steady persistence in that love is more wonderful still. The most important of all the distinctive ideas of the Old Testament is God's steady and extraordinary persistence in continuing to love wayward Israel in spite of Israel's insistent waywardness. I won't let them go. I won't let them go. Israel continued to sin. You know, that was the issue in that God sent his prophets out to bring his people back to him, to bring them to repentance, to cause them to return. In spite of their waywardness, insistent waywardness, God continued in his steadfast love toward them. One even was bold enough to call it stubborn steadfastness. Since God's loving kindness is his covenant love, his steadfast love, his sure love, and is grounded upon his very own faithfulness to his very own promises, his own super Super is not a big enough word. His own divine, glorious faithfulness to his glorious promises. How can anything fail that he has promised? Can we not say perhaps then with Paul, for what if some were without faith? Shall their want of faith make of none effect the faithfulness of God? God forbid. Shall the waywardness of Israel blunt God's steadfast love for them? God forbid. The original use, we're told, of the Hebrew word is to denote that attitude of loyalty and faithfulness which both parties to a covenant should observe toward each other. One used the term leal, L-E-A-L, leal love. I, I think that it has something of a Scottish derivation, leal love, but it means loyal and true. That's God's love, loyal and true, faithful, steadfast, determined. And our world has lost much of that. There isn't a whole lot of that loyal, true Faithful love in this world anymore. When the word came to be used predominantly of the covenant between Israel and Jehovah, it was realized by the prophets, this man says, that such a covenant could be maintained only by that persistent, determined, steadfast love of God, which transcends every other love by its nature and by its depth. Loving kindness. The loving kindness of God. Truth, faithfulness, loyalty, promise, especially in marriage. And I say that because we have in Hosea that betrothal, betrothal 
that picture that's given to us of a marriage, that covenant love, that covenant marriage love. Many times, the whole concept of covenant has to do with God speaking about his people as his bride, as his children, as his sons, as his daughters. And he holds that loving kindness, that steadfast love toward them. That troth, that determined faithfulness to a covenant, determined faithfulness to a promise. We see very little of that anymore also in our land. People can get lawyers and back down, back off, step out, step aside of any contract they want, it seems, anymore. There is no truth. There is no steadfast adherence to a compact with God is faithful to his covenant, his promises. We do not desire by any means to deny the meanings, loving kindness and mercy. But as I've suggested, they don't seem to quite embrace the entirety of it. If you go off on some of these thoughts and suggestions, you get stronger verbiage such as I've offered with steadfast love. Some of these others, it's not that they're incorrect, but they're just too weak to convey the strength, the firmness, and the persistence of God's sure love. Sure love is one of the best, in fact. Covenant love. As sure as his covenant is. God's wonderful love for his covenant people, as we've already said, bringing him to draw them back to himself, bring David back to himself. He won't let him go. Even though Israel was wayward, even though David was wayward, God's loving kindness would not let him go, would not let them go. We see that betrothal from the word troth to espouse, to solemnly promise to marry. Those solemn promises, what we call engagements, are usually rather loose too, are they not? But not with God. He makes a promise, he keeps it. What if, all, what if all marriages in our land were truly covenantal, were truly kept, where promises were kept, covenants were kept? I will betroth thee unto me in Hosea 2.19. God says, I will betroth thee. And it's founded in that passage, in the context, it's founded also on loving kindness and tender mercies. 
that covenant promise. Oh, indeed, bless Jehovah, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. He spoke to Israel <coughs> in language of pathos again. They wouldn't listen to him. And so he says in verse 14 of that second chapter, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will allure her. That sounds a lot like make her willing in the day of my power, doesn't it? I will allure her. It more technically, I'm told, means I, I will speak to her heart. And has not God spoken to each one of our hearts to draw us unto himself? I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope and she shall make answer there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt reminding the people of how that he, it was he himself who brought them out of the land of Egypt. He reminds them of his loving kindness, his faithfulness, his steadfastness. He said, I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in justice and in loving kindness. And in mercy. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. And thou shalt know Jehovah. All these other blessings contained in there. He makes a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the creeping things of the ground, and he'll break the bow and the sword and so on. All these other things I would suggest that these may be viewed as tender mercies flowing out of that loving kindness. And we think of the language of Paul that was cited this morning as well. All things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All things, those all things that he's talking about are the tender mercies of God. Because of his loving kindness, the tender mercies that flow through that loving kindness to his people, all things. And even that, even that further language, when he said, he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Tender mercies. Are we not called and are we not able to embrace these tender mercies knowing that they come to us through the loving kindness of our God, through his great faithfulness? Later on in that same second chapter, we read, And it shall come to pass in that day, I will answer, saith Jehovah, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain and the new wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel. 
and I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy, mercy, see, mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. Lo ruamah, no mercy. But now, he will have mercy, ruamah, for her that have not obtained mercy. And I will say unto them which were not my people, Lo ami, not my people, I will say unto them, Thou art my people, ami, my people. That's through the loving kindness of God. Through his steadfast love, through his determined love, through his faithful love. And they shall say, Thou art my God. I will say, My people, and they will say, Thou art my God. This is the crown of all the promises. This is the crown of all the promises. I will be your God and you shall be my people. It doesn't get any better than that. Loyal, faithful, honest, true love. One hymn in our book, 179, the author of that uses unswerving love. That's good too. He will not swerve from his determination. He will not swerve away from his people that he's covenanted with. He will not deny himself. Unswerving love, steadfast, insistent, determined love. I will speak to her heart. Thou art my people. And they shall say, (coughs) Thou art my God. Not just our God, like our brother prayed. He, He said, my. And that's what we're saying here. Thou art my God. Individual. Thou art my God. Jesus Christ is our crown. He is our covenant. He is our loving kindness. He is our tender mercy. He is our bridegroom who has loved us with an everlasting love. With an unswerving love. With an undying love. With a faithful love. With a leal love. With a love that would not let us go. Is he not also our crown of righteousness, our crown of life, our crown of mercy, our crown of glory? We have none of our own. We have no righteousness, no life apart from him, no glory but in and through him. Whatever he crowns us with, Whether righteousness, life, or glory is all derived from him as its fountain. Matthew Poole, speaking on, commenting on Hosea 2.19, I will betroth thee, where we find that loving kindness and in mercies. Matthew Poole says, loving kindness is the never exhausted fountain Mercies are the never-failing streams, the abundant fruits of that love toward the poor and undeserving objects of it. 
Love incarnate. That's the end of quote. Love incarnate died that we may experience never dying love. Love incarnate died that we may experience never dying love. That is covenant love. Let us pray. (coughs) Oh Lord our God, increase exponentially, we ask our gratitude to thee. We thank thee for the promise that we shall have eternity to be thanking thee. And we long for that, being with thee and being truly grateful. Father, we thank thee in Jesus' name. Just stand, please, for the benediction. From Isaiah 54:10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my loving kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall my covenant of peace be removed, saith Jehovah that hath mercy on thee. Amen.